church, I'm going to invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to pick back up in verse 17. As you're turning there, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. I want to open with a, um, I say it's funny, but sometimes it's not, depends on where I'm at, uh, illustration. Does anybody know what the look is? Show of hands if you know what the look is. I see a lot of men raising their hands, okay? I see some, I see some ladies raising their hands. I couldn't help but notice there's one. None of the kids were raising their hands. That is strange because kids, I think especially, are probably very familiar with the look, right? Uh-huh, there it is right there. Wonderful. Earlier, the kids were practicing the songs, and, and I'm going to say this. I don't think he'll mind, but Gabriel was dancing around, and I was at the back, and I just gave the look. I don't even know what the look looks like, but I looked at him in a way that he very quickly, he was kind of dancing around, and then he... <laughs> So we know what the look is. Children especially know what the look is. Dads know what the look is. It's it's when mom means business. But do you know why the look works? Why is it that that works? Because the look represents something. The look is actually a threat. It's a way of saying, oh, go ahead, do it again. (laughs) I dare you. We know that there's a threat looming behind the look. It's a promise of punishment or discipline if something isn't done or it isn't done right. Without the punishment or the discipline, the look means nothing. If I know that nothing will follow the look, the look doesn't mean anything at all. Who cares? Now I want you to imagine if someone had the power of the look and the power to see the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I'll tell you, for me, that is frightening. If we do the right thing in the wrong way, a human might not catch it, but God does. Here's our main idea this morning in light of these things. God cares about how we worship him. God cares about how we worship him. We'll see that in our text this morning. We're finishing up the seventh topic out of about ten in Paul's letter here. Traditions in the church. This week is going to be similar to last week, though there's going to be a slightly different focus you'll see in just a moment as we dive in. So hopefully you're there. I'm going to invite everyone to stand together for the reading of God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. Thus says the Lord. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. 
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup in the, in the Lord, of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Let's pray. Lord God, we need you to open up your word to us that we might see and hear and believe and respond in faith. Holy Spirit, please illuminate your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. So as I pointed out last week, this section, uh, really just 1 Corinthians chapter 11 on tradition, can kind of be divided into two sections. And you can see the two halves with his use of the word commend. So in verse 2, I commend you because you remember this and do this well, and then he explains it. But then in verse 17, in the following instructions, I do not commend you. So it's kind of a positive use of tradition and then a negative use of tradition. That's what we're going to look at this morning is the negative. So what's the tradition? We're actually going to look at two traditions this morning. I don't know if you caught this. The two traditions are, number one, the Lord's Supper. That's a tradition. But there's a second tradition. How it is practiced. If you think about the first tradition, we share this tradition with almost every church across all space and time. The Lord's Supper has been practiced from this time all the way to today. But when you think about the second tradition, that's a little bit different. Different churches handle it differently. I grew up in a church where we had some ladies that homemade the bread. It was actual bread that was broken into pieces and served out that way. I've been in churches where instead of using grape juice, they use wine. I've been in a church where everyone drank from the same cup, and they wiped and drank. So there are different ways uh, we practiced in our church when COVID hit, and we had these little plastic things, and you had to peel off and get the wafer and then try to peel and get the juice. It was a nightmare. There's all these different ways that this can be practiced. So that's a second tradition. The first tradition is the Lord's Supper. The second tradition is how it is practiced and celebrated. The church didn't always have wafers and welches. And it's this type of tradition that Paul is addressing negatively here. How they were practicing the good tradition of the Lord's Supper. So now look at verse 17. In the following instructions, I do not commend you, 
Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So this coming together is what the church is all about. The church is not a building. We call this a church building, but the church is the collection of people within the building. There is a church out of town that burned down. They meet under a tent. That is still a church. It doesn't matter what they're meeting at. You can get rid of the tent. And they can just meet out in the open air. That is still a church. It is still a gathering of people. The church, the word ecclesia, we looked at in our Sunday night study some time ago, literally means assembly or congregation. It's the idea we use congregation so much, we maybe kind of blow over this aspect of the definition, but a congregation is a collection of people who gather to congregate together. They assemble together for a purpose. So the church is an assembly. It is a group of Christians coming together. Well, what's Paul's problem? He hears that whenever they come together, they are actually separating. They are violating the very nature of the church in their gathering. They're actually dividing. That word actually describes a tearing apart. It's like ripping something so that instead of one, it's two. That's what's going on. This is what he's referring to in verse 17 when he says, when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. There are divisions in the church. Now, before going into their sinful habit, Paul makes a remark that's really easy to read past, but really important for us to note. He says, I believe it in part, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, the ESV chooses to translate this word. The Greek word is dei, D-E-I, kind of if you transliterate it, and the ESV translates it must. There must be divisions among you. There must be these factions in verse 19. That's technically correct. That, that is a correct translation. But I think there's a stronger sense of that word that we're missing out on. And the CSB translates the same word necessary. It is necessary for this to happen. So must is technically correct. But it's not just, oh, this must happen, but it's okay if it doesn't. It's, there is no option. In the gospel accounts, we see this used about Jesus is going to the cross. He says these things must take place. Same word. There is no alternative. This has to happen. So Paul is saying, in a, in a sense, in the church, there must be division. What does he mean by that? We'll keep looking in verse 19. He says, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now again, the ESV uses the word genuine to translate a word here that the CSB translates approved. The idea behind the Greek word here is that there is a testing or examination or close inspection that takes place. Another form of this word is translated later as the word test. So it's the idea that you've 
tested something and you can see, oh, now I see that it's genuine. Imagine a collector who comes across an artifact and they want to know, is this genuine? Or maybe if you've seen the show, uh, there's a show where they do this at a pawn shop and they had this guy and he's like, oh yeah, uh, I mean, I don't know. Look, I don't really know anything about this. Let me get my expert to come in and he's going to tell me about this. And the expert comes in and looks at it. He's like, oh, yeah, actually, yeah, this is a so-and-so, so-and-so. It's worth however many thousands of dollars. And you're like, oh, crazy. Okay, great, wonderful. You need someone who is able to test the work to see if it's genuine or not. So genuine is technically correct, but maybe approved might be better. The ESV translates it approved later in 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So genuine is correct, but only in the sense of being closely inspected. So now we can see here, how do we think about division? There is a type of division that is necessary because what it does is it reveals after testing what is genuine and what is not. Now, not all division does this. There is good division and bad division in this sense. How do we think in terms of good division and bad division? This is our first point this morning. Bad division obscures the gospel, while good division clarifies the gospel. Bad division obscures the gospel, while good division clarifies the gospel. So let me give you two examples of this from this letter. Think back to in chapters 1 and 2 when the Corinthians are dividing over the teachers of the church. This obscured the gospel, this bad division Paul condemns, because it elevated selfishness over selflessness in the body of Christ. But the gospel is lived out among Christians in part through our selfless imitation of our selfless creator. So by centering our worship around selfishness and selfish desires, we are obscuring the truth of the gospel. That we follow a selfless creator who has taught us and is teaching us to live selfless lives. And it's confusing for the world to see the church proclaiming one thing, but then living out another. So that division has obscured the truth of the gospel, and it's not good. Good division, however, in the same letter, is the division that Paul mentions in chapter 5 with church discipline. The gospel message is that we have been saved from our previous life of blatant, significant, unrepentant sin. However, by tolerating that in the church, the gospel message is obscured, so to clarify the gospel, division must take place. There must be some mechanism for saying, we separate from this because this is not us. This is one of the things we looked at last Sunday night, if you came Sunday night in Thyatira. This willingness to tolerate and to compromise is not good. If that division does not happen, then the genuine or approved believers or practices can't be recognized. Eventually what happens is you begin to lose the gospel. The gospel becomes less clear in the gathering. So that's what Paul is referring to here when he says, I hear that there are divisions among you, 
And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat or drink in and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So now we see the issue. They're practicing the Lord's Supper in such a way that it violates its intended purpose. Here is a bad division that's taking place. Now I want you to notice here that the Lord's Supper is more than bread and juice. I don't know if you picked up on this. It says um, in verse 20, When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Now they are eating the bread and drinking the juice. That is happening. Okay? But it's not the Lord's Supper. That means that the Lord's Supper is more than just the elements. That's not where its significance is. Its significance is in its intention. We eat bread and drink juice all the time. That's not the Lord's Supper. I go swimming all the time. That's not baptism. It's possible for someone to get wet in this baptistry and it not be a believer's baptism. It happens frequently, unfortunately, and we recognize that later. So the significance isn't just in the elements. It's in its intentions. Now, don't get me wrong. The elements are important. I was a part of a college a long, long time ago, and they were trying to stretch our minds, and they said, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in some ways that different cultures around the world would celebrate it. And one of the things we had, it wasn't bread. I don't remember what it was, but it was something and honey instead of bread and juice. And I remember thinking, it, it doesn't matter what you intend this to be, this is not the Lord's Supper. <laughs> Just like baptism. We believe in a Baptist church that baptism should be submersion because the word baptize means to submerge. So we fully submerge someone in the water. There's other churches that do not practice that. So there's different ways that these things are practiced, and the way that it's practiced is important, but that's not everything. There's something a little bit deeper. How we do these things matters. The Corinthians were obviously doing something wrong, even if we don't know what it quite was here. There's two options. Some commentators suggest that everyone brought their own elements. So when you came to the church, the gathering, you knew you were celebrating the Lord's Supper. You would bring your own bread and juice. So everyone came together. Well, those who were poorer did not have as much to bring. Then those who were wealthy had plenty to bring. And then it's time to eat, and the ones who are wealthy eat all their stuff, and they get drunk, and they've eaten all this bread, and they're happy and having a good time. And then the ones who are poor have had almost nothing. That's one option of what might be happening here. That's divisive. The second option is that they all came together and that some got a head start on the food and filled up before others could participate. Personally, I'm inclined towards the first, but both of these, I think, are possible. Regardless, Paul's point is clear. Their tradition, the way that they're practicing the Lord's Supper, is not good. It is humiliating and despising others in verse 22. I'm going to call this the horizontal aspect of doing church. 
There is a horizontal element with one another where we are all on the same plane and we are worshiping together and doing church together. In verses 23 through 26, we're going to see this vertical dimension. Look at verse 23. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So horizontally, the Lord's Supper was to be a unifying exercise. Though we are many individual people, we are one body in Christ. That was the intent. Well, vertically, what is the Lord's Supper? Put simply, it is the Passover meal of the new covenant. Let me explain this. If you're not as familiar with your Bibles, that's okay. The Bible is divided into two portions. There is an Old Testament, which will, that's pretty close, which is going to be way thicker. And then there's the New Covenant, the New Testament on this end over here. Old Testament, New Testament. The word testament comes from the Latin word, which means covenant. So we could actually call this the Old Covenant and then the New Covenant. That's how our Bibles are divided. So the Old Testament details the Old Covenant, while the New Testament details the New Covenant. And the Passover meal was an ordinance given by God in the Old Testament so that the Israelites might remember how God saved them from Egypt. He said, you're going to come together in remembrance of this miraculous event. There were these plagues that were given to the Egyptians, and the last one was the worst, and this death angel would come through and wipe out every firstborn in Israel. But there were special instructions given to the Israelites. You will sacrifice this lamb, and you will take its blood and wipe it over your doorposts. And when the death angel comes through, he will pass over your house, and you will be spared. So then God says, you will practice this Passover meal in remembrance of your deliverance. And you're also going to practice it in obedience to this covenant, this relationship that I'm going to have with you. You will practice, you will practice this ordinance. When Jesus established the Lord's Supper, what they were celebrating was the Passover meal. That's what it was. On the night when he was betrayed, he gathered up, and they are celebrating Passover. And so Jesus is taking this Old Testament ordinance, and he is now giving us Christians a New Testament ordinance out of that. Just like the Passover meal, the Lord's Supper is a memorial ordinance. That's why Jesus repeats uh, Paul repeats this phrase that Jesus gives him, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. And then he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. It is a memorial ordinance. Contrary to the teaching of some churches, 
The Lord's Supper is not the actual sacrifice of Jesus taking place over and over again. The Lord's Supper is not the literal body and blood of Jesus. The Lord's Supper does not turn into the body and blood of Jesus when you eat it. The Lord's Supper is a memorial just like the Passover, but for the new covenant, not the old covenant. That's what is being presented here. This represents the vertical dimension of the church. So in in practicing the Lord's Supper, there's a horizontal communion with one another when we are coming together and celebrating our unity in Christ. Then there's this vertical relationship, fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as we remember what God has done through Jesus on the cross. When we gather as a church, Most of what we do together has both this vertical and horizontal dimension. How we relate with God and how we relate with one another. This is true of our worship, of the ordinances, baptism, the Lord's Supper. It's true regarding our traditions, the way that we choose to carry out the church's mission. How we choose to do that can have implications both vertically and horizontally. And this is what Paul's referring to here in verse 27. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. A worthy manner is a manner that conforms to its intended purposes. It is in alignment. An unworthy manner is out of alignment, either vertical alignment or horizontal alignment. When we get out of alignment there, we are practicing it in an unworthy manner. That means that it's somehow an offense towards others or towards God. An unworthy manner does not mean I've sinned recently and I haven't confessed it to God in prayer, so I I shouldn't take the Lord's Supper right now. We're going to practice this in a couple of weeks. Here's what this is not saying. Church, take the Lord's Supper. Unless you think you sinned this morning, then don't take it. That is not what that means. I'll tell you this. If that's what it means, not a soul in this building should take it. That's not what it means. To take it in an unworthy manner means that we are taking it in a way that does not conform to its intended purposes. An unworthy manner might be something like this. I've got something between me and another church member that is causing division or tension in the body, and I am refusing to deal with it. That is unworthy. Because now you are living in a significant unrepentant sin that is dividing the body and you're coming together to practice a unifying celebration and memorial of what Christ has done. That is unworthy. Jesus gives the following instruction in Matthew 5, 23 through 24. He says, If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. The Lord's Supper is a memorial where we proclaim the gospel together. So the worthy manner here, we see it in two ways. 
Number one, this remembrance. We are remembering this is my body. Do this in remembrance. This is the cup. Do this in remembrance. It is a mental reflection of what we say we believe. We are remembering Christ has done. But number two, it is also proclaiming. When we take the Lord's Supper, we are demonstrating what we say we believe. One way that I heard it put once that I've never thought about before, but I really, really like the more I think about it. We are seeing the gospel take place in our church. When we sing, we are singing the gospel. When we pray, we want to pray the truths of the gospel. When the preaching is taking place, we are preaching the gospel. When we take the Lord's Supper or when we participate and witness believers' baptism, we are seeing the gospel. We are seeing someone die to their old life and rise to walk in newness of life. We are seeing the sacrifice of Jesus in the broken bread and taking and in the cup. We are demonstrating what we say we believe. That means that we are working towards peace and unity with one another. We are all pursuing holiness together. We're making a visible and verbal declaration about our relationship with one another and our relationship with Christ. We have all been purchased by the Son, and we belong to one another. We are brothers and sisters. So let's take the Lord's Supper together as we remember our Lord. That is proclaiming the gospel. A non-believer should see something about our church and the way that we practice this. It's a way to say we belong to each other, that's the horizontal, and we belong to Jesus, that's the vertical. Now what Paul is applying to the Lord's Supper here, I'm going to apply to all worship in general for our second point. How we worship communicates something about what or whom we worship. I think that's grammatically correct. If it's not, I'm sure you're going to tell me. Feel free. I think it's right. How we worship communicates something about what or whom we worship. There's a, um, I should have looked this up. There's a phrase, there's a saying. I believe it's Latin and it's, I'm not going to remember the Latin for it, but it's um, as we sing, so we believe. As we believe, so we sing. Something to that effect. The idea is the gospel should shape whatever container that it is held within. We hold the gospel. It should shape the container that it's held in. The church has affirmed this for hundreds of years. The way that we sing should reflect gospel truth. What we sing should reflect gospel truth. The way that we live should reflect gospel truth. Someone should know something about the gospel based on the decision-making that they see in our lives. The gospel truth should shape, should shape the church. How we worship communicates something about what it is we are worshiping or whom we are worshiping, either in a good or bad way. We worship the Lord or... We worship fill-in-the-blank. And you can tell by how we are worshiping. You can tell that with the Corinthians. What do they worship? Well, in that moment, they worship their guts. I'm hungry and I want to eat. So Paul tells them that's not appropriate. Eat at the house so when you come together, you're not hungry. That will communicate a better gospel truth than what you're currently doing. 
the way the Corinthians practiced the Lord's Supper communicated something about their intentions, their hearts. They weren't thinking about one another, and they weren't thinking about clearly communicating the gospel. They were thinking about whatever benefited them the most, and God disciplines them for it. This is how it is with our traditions sometimes. We don't think about others or the gospel as much as we think about the benefit to me personally. In our daily lives, think back to chapters 8 through 10 and the giving up of our freedoms or rights. Remember, worship is more than a song. It's a lifestyle lived for the glory of God. So the best way to get the how right is to examine ourselves, which leads to the rest of our passage here. This is in verse 28. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. The Corinthians needed to examine themselves to keep from warping their traditions around themselves instead of centering them around God and others. They needed to take a step back and say, okay, why are we doing this this way? What is this really accomplishing? What are we potentially communicating that we're not trying to communicate? How can we communicate better? This is what ought to have happened. And this passage here is where God shows us that he cares about how seriously we take these things. God will discipline us in order to keep us focused on the right things. Do you notice what the Corinthians did wrong here is they just celebrated the Lord's Supper in a wrong way. It promoted division. What was the punishment? Many of them got sick and died. That seems kind of harsh to me. I'm speaking in the flesh here. That seems bad. God, is that really, is that really the type of punishment that that deserves? And I'm reminded of my children. I'll give this example in just a moment. What this shows us is that God takes this seriously. That's not to say that God is going to strike us all with sickness or kill us if we mess something up in the church. But he could if he wanted to, which is the point of this. I would imagine it depends on how stubborn we're being in refusing to listen to him and how severely it is threatening the gospel message in the church. I can't say when he's going to do what he's going to do, but I know that he takes it seriously. How do I know? Because many of them got sick and died. So he takes it seriously. Therefore, because God disciplines us, Paul's instruction is for us to discipline ourselves first. Examine ourselves first. Judge ourselves first. If we judge ourselves, then we can avoid being disciplined by God. But if we don't, we open up ourselves to the potential for error and discipline. 
And this judging, just like our worship and the Lord's Supper, is intended to be both vertical and horizontal in the church. Did you notice in verse 31? Look at this again. He says in verse 30, This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But then he shifts here. Instead of using you here, he says, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. So he has this shift. I don't know what you call this grammatically, but he's talking about you and you were sick and you were die and you have died. But then he doesn't say you anymore. He doesn't say if you judged yourself. He says, but if we judged ourselves truly, he's referring here not just to the individual group, but the entire church. If the entire church would come together and judge yourselves accordingly, then you would not be judged by the Lord. This beckons back to chapter 5 when Paul commands the church to judge themselves in matters of blatant, unrepentant, significant sin. If they had done this regarding the Lord's Supper, they could have self-corrected before discipline happened, but they didn't. They just acted however they wanted, so Paul is correcting them here. So this leads to our final point this morning. We must take seriously what the Lord takes seriously. God takes it seriously when we don't take seriously what he takes seriously. That's the whole purpose of discipline, to demonstrate how bad something is so that it can be corrected. And this is where I'll point back to my children here. I don't discipline my kids for trivial matters. I choose what I discipline them for. I might just simply correct them on the spot. Hey, this ought not to be done. But they'll both tell you one of the things that I discipline the hardest for in our house is lying. We do not tolerate that. We cannot tolerate that. And they will tell you right now the punishment for lying is severe. You don't want that. Now, you may not choose to do this, but in my house, this is what we do. The severity of the discipline has a purpose. It communicates this is destructive and dangerous and must be avoided at all costs. This is why we have crimes in our country that we have a harsher sentence for. It's a big deal. Now, you may not agree with the severity of that specific discipline in that case, but it doesn't change the fact that the severity of the discipline shows something about the importance of what you're pursuing. God takes church seriously. Everything that we're doing here, he takes this seriously. He takes the Lord's Supper seriously. He takes worship seriously. He takes his commands seriously. He takes sin seriously. This is why Jesus went to the cross. God takes sin seriously. How seriously? Well, he sent Jesus. He took on flesh. He walked here 30-something odd years, and he got on a cross, and he died to free us from our bondage to sin. The cross reminds us that God takes sin seriously. Our biggest condemnation is that we don't. We don't take these things seriously. We just treat it flippantly. It is to our condemnation that we do that. And if we do not self-correct in these areas when they arise, the Lord takes it seriously. And he will correct us one way or the other. 
So when it comes to, to tradition or different practices in the church, let us take these things seriously. Considering what it communicates about God, how it affects others, and do it in such a way that the gospel is presented loud and clear. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, as we sang earlier, we desire revival, not just in our church, but in our country, in our town, in our state. Lord, around the world, we want to see a wave of repentance and dedication and faith. Lord, we recognize that if we are to see revival, it must start here with us. We also recognize, Lord, that you treat seriously how we handle things as a church and in the church. That you desire for the gospel to be clearly proclaimed and not obscured in our gathering. So, Lord, give us wisdom and discernment that we might know when division is necessary and when it is sinful. Lord, so work in our hearts that we might be open and willing to examine ourselves collectively to see why it is we do what we do, to see if there's a way that we can do things that will more clearly exalt your Son and the truth of the gospel. Lord, we desire to do things in a way that pleases you and builds up one another, so please help us. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We know that you take sin seriously because you have given your one and only Son to die in our place so that whoever believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. Thank you. Lord, if there is a soul in this building that has not turned to you and trusted you in faith, believed and repented, I pray that you would overwhelm that individual, that you would draw them to yourself, that they might turn and be saved from their sin. Lord, for the rest of us, would you make us into a holy people, a loving people, a serious people who take your book and take your church seriously. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.